hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Welcome back to the next episode of the BC Laws Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Samantha Bear. We're joined by Professor Ryan Williams to talk about a, a topic that is uh, as important as is polarizing. That's obviously what's gone on recently with the Supreme Court, abortion, and the Dobbs case. We're joined by uh, Professor Ryan Williams, who's going to discuss the case with us today. Uh, professor Williams joined the BC Law faculty as an assistant professor of law in 2016. He teaches and writes in the areas of constitutional law, civil procedure, and federal courts. His research has included works focusing on the original meetings of the 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments, as well as works exploring the intersection of constitutional rules and the civil litigation process. His prior publications have appeared or are forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal, Columbia Law Review, Stanford Law Review, the Notre Dame Law Review, and the Virginia Law Review. Uh, after graduating from Columbia Law School, Williams worked as a litigation associate in the New York office of Sullivan and Cromwell, where his practice focused primarily on class actions and other complex commercial litigation. After leaving practice, he was a Charleswood Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Law School from 2011 to 2013, and an associate in law at Columbia uh, during uh, the period of 2013 to 2016. And he's here with us today. We're very happy to, to have you on. Professor Williams, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, well, we want to uh, get into the case and kind of talk about what's uh, what, what's happened here. But before talking about uh, the Dobbs decision itself, we wanted to just back up a little bit and sort of talk about how the Supreme Court uh, got to this point. So there's an article in the New York Times on uh, June 25th by Charlie Savage, and it uh, starts off saying, In the spring of 1985, a 35-year-old lawyer in the Justice Department, Samuel Alito Jr., cautioned the Reagan administration against mounting a frontal assault on Roe versus Wade, obviously the, the case we're all familiar with. Uh, the landmark ruling that declared a constitutional right to abortion. The Supreme Court was not ready to overturn it, he said, so urging it to do so could backfire. In a memo offering advice on two pending cases that challenged state laws regulating abortion, Mr. Alito advocated at the time focusing on a more incremental argument. The court should uphold the regulations as reasonable. That strategy would, quote, advance the goals of bringing about the eventual overruling of Roe versus Wade, and in the meantime, mitigating its effects. More than three decades later, Justice Alito has fulfilled that vision. Um, so, uh, Professor Williams, if you could just sort of talk to us a little bit, and, and feel free to uh, tell, tell the audience anything about yourself that you'd like, but just in the decades since Roe, um, how did the Supreme Court get from there to here, and uh, what, what's happened during that time? Sure, thank you so much. Um, that's an interesting uh, uh, observation about uh, uh, now Justice Leto. I had not, uh, not seen that article and not sort of heard that uh, discussion, but it is uh, an interesting kind of insight and window to the thinking at that time because it kind of plays into some of the developments that uh, happen in the road between uh, Roe and um, uh, 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 our present circumstance with Dobbs, and uh, let me uh, let me go back to sort of Roe itself, which is decided, of course, in 1973. Uh, this case is decided by a uh, seven to two vote uh, of the Supreme Court, uh, written by an appointee of Republican President uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, other Republican appointed justices uh, join in the majority. Uh, the two, two dissenters were William Rehnquist and uh, Byron White, one reported, one appointed by Justice, uh, President Nixon, one appointed by uh, a former Democratic President uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, and at the time Roe was decided, it is part of an outgrowth of a line of jurisprudence that is kind of burgeoning in the courts, really stemming in a significant way from the 1965 decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, which recognizes a constitutional right of married couples to use contraceptives in their own home. I get that kind of, and 
subsequent decisions sort of decided in, in, in the interim. I just give that kind of as a background, uh, just to kind of set the stage, because at the time Roe has decided, it is not the political football or the contentious issue it is today. Now, there is obviously very strong feeling on the issue uh, and a lot of division within the states about and in the federal government about how to proceed in this area. Uh, but it is not politically polarized in the way it is now. It was common to find, see pro-life Democrats and uh, pro-choice Republicans uh, and vice versa. Uh, that begins to change over the course of the 1970s, really crystallizing with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, where the Republican Party organizes very centrally around opposition to Roe uh, and support for abortion restrictions, and the Democratic Party uh, gravitates more towards the uh, opposite direction. Uh, now, I give that background because I think the it sort of informs what uh, uh, someone like uh, uh, Mr. Alito was thinking in the mid-1980s in terms of the overall policy goal uh, of a president like uh, Ronald Reagan, which is to uh, undermine Roe in some ways or find a way to uh, narrow or lessen its significance uh, and trying to think of the tactical ways to do so. Uh, now, the sort of ironic thing that I just see just hearing that description is that the Supreme Court kind of goes in a direction that uh, Mr. Alito suggests in 1992, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, uh, which did involve actual, actually a frontal challenge to the Roe decision itself. Uh, by this time, it is uh, after the presidencies of uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, George H.W. Bush, both of whom ran on uh, very strong kind of pro-life platforms, and at the time of the Casey decision, decision, a majority of the court is actually uh, appointed by justices who've run on a pro-life message. There's only uh, one remaining Democratic-appointed president on the court at that time, and it is uh, Byron White, one of the dissenters in uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, now, a lot of people thought, given that background, given that context, Casey might be the occasion where the court would overrule Roe. Uh, instead, they took much more of a kind of intermediate measure, uh, somewhat of along the lines of what uh, Mr. Alito is suggesting in that uh, uh, article you're describing, uh, where they replaced a very rigid trimester framework that had been suggested by Roe with a more flexible undue burden standard, but they refused to reverse what they call the core holding of Roe, uh, including the absolute prohibition on uh, 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 any laws that uh, criminalize abortion prior to the point of fetal viability. Now, in the aftermath of Casey, of course, this controversy doesn't go away. The parties don't realign themselves in any significant way. And the Republican Party continues to press for ways to narrow and avoid and uh, uh, get around the restrictions of Roe. Uh, now, in the aftermath of that decision, it becomes much more clear that a frontal assault is not going to work. Uh, much of the action moves toward the states. Uh, and the action in the states involves largely working within this undue burden framework to try to find ways to lessen and limit access to uh, abortion within the parameters specified by the Casey decision. And really, that has been the terrain of uh, abortion litigation over the past uh, 30 years uh, since uh, the Casey decision. Uh, and really, Dobbs arrives at the court in this posture in somewhat kind of unusual circumstances because really Dobbs was teed up as a case kind of pursuing that strategy, sort of seeing what are the outer limits of Casey, uh, particularly the law at issue is a 15-week abortion ban uh, prior to the point of viability, but the argument by on behalf of the state of Mississippi is that maybe there's a way to reconcile this with Casey uh, by sort of changing how we think about that undue burden standard without sort of making a frontal assault 
during the course of argument and briefing, that strategy changes, and both sides kind of take the position that if this law is going to be struck down, it's going to involve a frontal assault on Roe. And that is kind of where the case kind of winds up in the uh, ultimate decisional posture. Thank you. That was really insightful. Um, I was lucky enough to be a student in your common law class in the spring, so I'm especially excited to hear everything. And I wanted to start off um, talking about the leak. Uh, You wrote a great article uh, for NBC in May that discussed the fundamental problems with the actual leak itself, not the opinion that was leaked, but just that it was leaked, the draft. Um, And she's Chief Justice Roberts has called the leak absolutely appalling. Um, And I wanted to know, just explain shortly why you think the leak was so remarkable and why it's so problematic. Yeah, this is a new uh, feature of this case we haven't kind of seen in this form, uh, at least in the court's modern history. If you go back to the 19th century, you can find some precedents of some somewhat similar context, uh, sort of draft opinions of, of, for example, the Dred Scott decision kind of made their way into certain newspapers uh, prior to the time of that decision, but uh, uh, it was not the media environment that was today. So if you didn't subscribe to that newspaper, you wouldn't probably hear about it. Uh, Since that time, particularly in the 20th century, the court's gotten much better in terms of keeping its secrets and keeping its confidences. Uh, Opinions will or, or... information about voting alignments or opinions might leak out here and there. Uh, Something similar happened in Roe, for example, uh, very shortly before the opinion. But an actual opinion itself leaking, the full draft opinion, is something we really haven't seen in the modern era. And it really did kind of cast some... uh, I would say some uncertainty and some doubts within the court from all sort of outside reporting that we can kind of discern and sort of discussing and com- conversing with people who've, who've kind of worked in that institution and have had that uh, uh, experience of working within the court. It does very much rely on the maintenance of confidences to kind of ensure the free flow and uh, uh, exchange of ideas and information within the building. Uh, the exchange of drafts is a very central way that the justices kind of negotiate and come to agreements about what to include in opinion, what to leave out, uh, and the ability to share that information with those within the justices' circle of confidence, clerks, court personnel, etc., cetera, uh, really facilitates that exchange of information. Uh, so the disclosure of this uh, uh, draft opinion really was very much unprecedented in the modern era, and I think there is some valid concern within the court and among court watchers about what are the implications going forward? Is this going to be a routine feature in the future? Is it going to work more like Congress or the presidency or executive departments where leaks are just sort of an ordinary part of doing business? Uh, if that becomes the norm, I think it's going to lead to some very profound changes regarding the internal dynamics of how the court uh, interacts internally uh, as an institution. Now, that could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing, but it's going to definitely be a change in the way the court operates. So to follow up on that, uh, Professor, so obviously, you know, as you mentioned, uh, a leak uh, from the Supreme Court of this nature is, is you know, would seem is unprecedented uh, in the modern history of the court. But obviously dealing with uh, controversial topics and making controversial decisions is not something that's new uh, to the Supreme Court when it comes to dealing with cases that involve um, obviously very polarizing issues uh, throughout the country. What, and obviously this involves a deal of speculation, but what could it be about this decision in this court 
um, that that might have caused the leak to happen today because this is probably not the first time that this could have happened, but it certainly is the first time that it has. So, is there something about the court? Is there something about the the moment, the, this moment history, and in, in the country you could point to? Like what? Why did this happen now? Uh, it's a great question. I think we won't really know for certain uh, until we know. Uh, more details about the leak, including probably uh, who uh, actually leaked the document, which is something we may or may not discover, may may discover sort of many, many years later. Uh, The uh, motivation, uh, you know, it's it's always possible to speculate about what the motivation could be, uh, but uh, 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 without kind of knowing the actual details, it's hard to kind of point to a direct causal effect. Now, obviously, this is a very significant, highly salient case. It's probably the most controversial decision uh, the court has handed down in at least a decade, probably. Uh, you know, you could go back to uh, NFIB versus Sibelius, the healthcare case, maybe kind of a possible example. I'm not even sure that would uh, uh, compare in quite the same way. Uh, you know, you could make a case. It's probably the most controversial case the court has had uh, since the Casey case in, in 1992. So uh, obviously the stakes are incredibly high. The public interest in the case is extremely significant. Uh, so that probably contributed in whatever way to the motivation to leak. Now, I don't think there's anything that has changed in a meaningful way regarding uh, technology or other things. I mean, there are obviously greater um, sort of copying and other sort of technological uh, uh, tools available now that can kind of facilitate these sorts of things. But I think from what people have sort of gleaned from looking at the document, it looks like this was originally a paper document. You can see the staple marks and other things. Uh, so it's the kind of leak that could have happened uh, certainly in a much earlier era as well. Right. Um, and do you think the court is more likely, in your opinion, to go more towards um, transparency or being even more locked down and what do you think is the benefit of each of those options? Yeah, so this is an idea I sort of um, uh, floated in the in the NBC article, and it's not unique to me. Other other people have proposed this in the past that maybe we should think about maybe th- uh, are there ways to be more transparent in terms of the uh, judicial decision making and uh, opinion writing process. Uh, some have argued, for example, that it would be beneficial for the justices to share drafts of their opinions with the public, allow for a period of kind of public notice and comments similar to what we have for uh, administrative regulations and other sort of important uh, mo- modes of rulemaking to give uh, individuals a, a chance to opine before the thing be opinion becomes final. Uh, now, I thought this was kind of potentially an interesting test case of that proposal to see kind of we have a draft available in the public, see what changes there might be. Uh, now, those who've gone back and looked at it, um, that was sort of certainly my, my, my immediate impression, subsequently confirmed by those who've sort of taken close kind of red line and other looks at it, uh, is a very, very little change from the draft yes. to the final version. Uh, so all the public commentary and discussion regarding the contents of the opinion uh, were sort of not in any way sort of meaningfully incorporated uh, into the draft. The draft apparently was sort of pretty final at the time it came uh, to the public's opinion uh, attention and very little change thereafter. Now, you could imagine a court that would be more receptive to that kind of proposal, uh, but if the court is not really interested in sort of having that kind of outside uh, input, uh, I would expect that uh, the transparency mode will probably be uh, a 
less preferred option than sort of trying to go back to the way things have kind of always been done in the modern era. So, Professor, uh, now turning our uh, attention to the decision itself, can you talk a little bit about what this decision does, what it does not do, and uh, specifically how it does it? What was the majority arguing here? Sure. So the question kind of the, the case tees up kind of, well, as it eventually is disposed of by the court, it tees up kind of two central questions. Uh, one is the question of the correctness of the Roe decision itself, the initial decision to extend uh, heightened constitutional protection to abortion rights under the framework of substantive due process. Uh, and then the second question uh, is, regardless of the correctness or incorrectness of the original decision, should we stand by it as a matter of stare decisis? Uh, now, the majority opinion kind of uh, answers both of those questions in the negative. It says Roe was not correct the day it was decided, uh, does not comport with the majority's, uh, what the majority believes is the correct approach for identifying uh, fundamental rights that should be singled out for heightened scrutiny. The majority says the pro- correct approach for uh, addressing this question is to focus on rights that are deeply rooted in history and tradition, uh, drawing on an important strand of earlier substantive due process cases where the court has employed that uh, uh, test and framework. Uh, it concedes that that framework is not uh, has not always been used by the court, that certain important precedents, uh, including Roe itself, as well as uh, the Griswold case, recognizing contracep- a, a, a fundamental right to contraceptive use, uh, as well as uh, Lawrence versus Texas, which re- uh, recognized a fundamental right to certain forms of sexual intimacy, as well as uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which uh, extended constitutional protection to the right to uh, marry someone of the same sex. Uh, depart from that framework, don't work, don't work within that deeply rooted history and tradition test, uh, but the court says that those issues, those other rights are not directly implicated here uh, because none of them involves the unique context of abortion, uh, which implicates uh, the uh, uh, potential effect on a human life or a potential human life. So finds all of those other decisions uh, distinguishable, says this case is narrowly focused on the abortion issue. Uh, on the stare decisis question, the majority uh, proposes a somewhat new framework, uh, the Casey decision, uh, as most uh, 1L comma students learn, uh, deployed a pretty elaborate uh, stare decisis framework focusing on uh, a number of factors, including reliance interests, uh, workability, and uh, uh, whether there have been important changes in facts, uh, circumstances, or doctrine. Uh, the new framework that's announced in the Dobbs decision incorporates some of those considerations, including reliance and workability, but dispenses with that inquiry into whether there have been significant changes in facts or under, uh, understandings of facts and replaces them with some other considerations, including how egregious was the initial error and how the quality of the reasoning reflected in the original decision. Uh, Now, applying that new framework, the majority concludes that the balance of considerations tilt in favor of overruling the Roe decision uh, because, among other things, they believe the uh, initial decision was egregiously wrong. Uh, They believe the undue burden standard announced in Casey has proven unworkable, and they uh, uh, discount the reliance interest at stake, suggesting that uh, there are not 
tangible, concrete reliance interests that are implicated here, uh, more general amorphous societal interests. And with regard to those, the court kind of suggests, the majority suggests uh, that is beyond the judicial competence to measure and does not provide a strong reason for uh, refusing to, for, for standing by the original decision. Now, the dissent obviously takes issue on each and every one of those uh, positions, and we can sort of talk talk through the dissent uh, and the other opinions as well, if, if, if you'd like. I'll, I'll pause there just to mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So talking, yeah, talking more about substantive due process, um, the majority, like you said, points out that um, the weakness of the legal reasoning in Roe and, and says the Dobbs opinion is exclusive to abortion um, and the state's interest in protecting potential life and fundamentally different from the other cases, Lawrence, Griswold, Obergefeld. Um, but if we go look at Justice Thomas's concurrence, he's not shy in <laughs> saying his opinion that um, substantive due process is not legitimate at all and blatantly states that we should reconsider all all the key, these cases, um, calling them demonstrously erroneous. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, concurred and said that he believed the court has gone too far in its reasoning, does not agree that we need to over, overrule Roe completely. Um, so how do you think we will see this line of cases um, unfold in the future, um, including like the right to privacy. Will these other cases get challenged? Will the court say no? Dobbs was just, you know, um, for abortion, potential life. Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, but um, it seems the door has been at least cracked open. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I've I've, I've tried to uh, lessen the frequency with which I'm, with which I say this. Saws that that my students eventually sort of beat out of me was uh, Yogi Berra's famous quote: uh, "Predictions are hard, especially about the future." Yes, uh, which is why I sort of decline uh, uh, trying to make them with any sort of rigor. But um, uh, just just to, to return to just Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, just for a moment, is, yeah. it, it is notable because he diverged from the majority, yes. uh, the five the five justice majority, and he would have uh, also disagreed with the uh, dissenters because he would have taken kind of the initial invitation that Mississippi offered, uh, which was to uh, tweak the undue burden standard in a very it's probably more than a tweak, but to revise it in a very significant way uh, that would have allowed for some pre viability abortions as long as, in the court's judgment, there was adequate. Uh, time for a woman to make a decision about whether or not to continue her pregnancy. Uh, that was not a position that was joined in by any other justice, kind of an intermediate position to retain something of the Roe framework uh, for at least some time uh, while allowing for a much broader range uh, of regulation and restriction. Uh, with regard to Justice Thomas's opinion, I think he is, uh, his views on substantive due process are kind of not a new uh Revelation. He sort of had this position articulated for a uh, very long time, stretching back uh, at least 10 years, at least to the uh, uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago uh, decision, where he authored opinions sort of spelling out some similar reservations about the concept of substantive due process in general. Uh, And here he is suggesting that all of the many, many more decisions, including uh, Griswold, uh, Obergefell, and Lawrence, uh, should be, in an appropriate case, uh, subject to revisitation. Uh, He does sort of caveat, holds out the possibility that at least some of those rights might be grounded instead in the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause, which uh, in his view is a much more proper home for this kind of uh, rights-protective jurisprudence. Uh, But given his his sort of votes in the Lawrence Nobergerfeld case, uh, at least, I think it's fair to mark him as skeptical of the uh, overall reasoning of of, of those uh, original decisions, regardless of which clause 
was placed directly at, at issue. Now, I think it is worth noting that both the majority uh, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who joins the majority but writes separately uh, just to express some of his, his, his own views, take very significant pains to emphasize that they are not saying anything in this opinion directly about uh, those other uh, fundamental, fundamental rights cases like Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Uh, so if you're sort of looking at it as a pure kind of legal realist perspective, you're just trying to predict what the f- at least five justices on this court are going to do, uh, I think there is uh, substantial reason to doubt that uh, 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 there is a current majority on the court that is at least eager to go back uh, and overrule those decisions. Uh, now, I think the majority's opinion also functions as an instruction to lower courts to not kind of overread this decision, to uh, sort of invite those challenges to these other fundamental rights decisions. It says this is about abortion and nothing else. We're not saying anything about the status of any of our other decisions, so those are going to remain binding on the lower courts as a matter of vertical stare decisis. Uh, now, many people have pointed out, and I think with some fairness, that this does create some inconsistency in the doctrine. I think the Dobbs majority says very clearly the appropriate way, the only appropriate way to identify these uh, fundamental rights that are should be singled out for heightened protection is to look to what is deeply rooted in history and tradition and applying that test, it's going to be very hard to uh, identify something like the <clears throat> holding of Lawrence or the holding of Obergefell uh, as uh, uh, worthy of the same kind of treatment as, as, as some other uh, rights the court finds uh, more, more preferable. Uh, so there is a doctrinal inconsistency there, but um, there are many doctrinal inconsistencies in constitutional law, and many of which persist for years and even decades. So I wouldn't draw too much inference from the fact that that inconsistency exists in terms of the eagerness or willingness of a majority of the court to go back and kind of clean up and fix that inconsistency. So, Professor Williams, uh, the Dobbs opinion on its first page says that the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. So, in other words, states, you know, state legislatures uh, can decide the policy on abortion for their state. Um, and obviously, it's it's not news to anyone that people in different parts of the country and in different states have very varying and polarizing views uh, on abortion. A Pew Research poll uh, found that almost 60% of adults in Mississippi, where Dobbs originated, believe abortion should be illegal in most cases, while the same Pew Research poll found three quarters, about 74% of adults in Massachusetts, believe that abortion should be legal in most or all circumstances. So you can see some of the, the, the polarization that exists there. Can you speak to the various reactions state legislatures across the country are having uh, to this decision? And how does one balance uh, you know, the different opinions, beliefs, uh, and what have you towards the issue of abortion that people have in some states versus other states, balance against uh, the argument towards a fundamental right, a national right, uh, towards abortion? Yeah, so um, one thing to be aware of is is whatever happens in the legislatures uh, from the point of the Dobbs decision on uh, is going to be uh, informed by what has come before, and uh, by which I mean that there are some states in which it's not even necessary for the legislature to take any vote uh, to uh, re-implement some uh, restrictions uh, of the type that would have been invalid under Roe. And this is not just about Mississippi, where the, uh, had, which had the 15-week uh, abortion ban that was challenged in the actual case. Many other states had similar laws uh, on the books that had been enjoined uh, by uh, uh, federal courts. Uh, several states had what are called trigger laws in place, uh, essentially saying, 
when, if and when the Supreme Court uh, overrules the Roe decision and returns its authority to the states, uh, we will uh, ban abortion in, or, or restrict access to abortion. In some cases, that would happen automatically. In other cases, that would happen uh, on some kind of certification process. Uh, but that process is underway uh, as well. Uh, now, a couple of just sort of observations about the internal politics surrounding all of this. Uh, first observation is whatever the state legislatures might prefer to do is going to be constrained by uh, whatever is in the state constitutions. Many states have uh, their own constitutional provisions that have uh, language uh, similar to the due process clause of the federal constitution or other provisions that have in at least some states been interpreted to confer rights uh, similar uh, to the uh, rights recognized in Roe. Uh, the Kansas Supreme Court, for example, uh, just a couple years back, uh, handed down a decision that uh, recognized a right to abortion uh, under the Kansas Constitution. Now, Kansas is a fairly conservative state. Uh, if that were simply a matter for the legislature, that would be something that uh, they could put into place tomorrow. But until that uh, uh, decision is uh, overruled or changed by a constitutional amendment, which there is an amendment on the ballot, I believe, that's going to be voted on this summer, uh, restoring that authority to the legislature, uh, those going to be restricted. So that's going to be one barrier to any sort of uh, legislative policymaking. Uh, a reminder that kind of state constitutional law is also a thing and also a very important constraint on uh, legislative decision-making. Uh, the other observation, just sort of in terms of internal politics, uh, within a state is that I think for the first time in a very long time, this issue is now real. It's genuine. It's live. This is not a matter where legislators legislators can just posture in the way they could uh, during the Roe era, uh, enact these bans in the expectation that they will be struck down by the courts and never go into legal effect. Uh, now it's actually going to matter what they uh, decide, and voters are going to have to uh, appraise the actual consequences of those decisions. Uh, in some states, uh, we will likely see very strong support for those measures. Uh, in others, we will obviously see uh, um, uh, more opposition, but I don't think we should necessarily assume that any of that opinion is going to be static. The opinion can change over time as the facts on the ground change. Now, the other big issue that this uh, decision is going to tee up is going to be the relation among the states uh, in terms of the uh, interstate movement of individuals uh, seeking access to abortion, uh, which is going to be a new source of legal friction among the states, uh, particularly to the extent uh, particular jurisdictions try to regulate or restrict or punish their domiciliaries when they move uh, beyond state lines and try to procure access to abortion in another state. Uh, and that is an issue that is going to be most likely uh, confronting the courts and something the Supreme Court may uh, have to decide uh, uh, in the somewhat near future, sort of. So there's a lot to work out what happens in the kind of post-Dobbs uh, environment. You could just uh, jump in to follow up on that. That's obviously been something that, you know, as you pointed out there, that folks are really talking about, you know, how, how will that work when you have sort of one state against another state and what are states sort of able to do to enforce their policies and what happens between states? Could you just, to the extent you're able, give us a little bit of a preview of some of the legal issues, constitutional issues that can come up when you when you have that conversation? Sure, and this gets into another uh, area that I uh, uh, teach in and 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 uh, uh, think about, which is conflicts of law. And this has uh, been kind of a more abound area for, for very interesting to some of us. But uh, it was a major issue surrounding the, the law of gay marriage. It kind of dropped out of constitutional significance, but now it is kind of returning with a vengeance, uh, which involves the. Uh, 
how courts should go about sorting out uh, which jurisdiction's law, when particular facts or circumstances implicate the law of more than one state. And uh, there are various provisions in the Constitution that speak to this question, uh, including the uh, full faith and credit clause of Article 4, requiring each state to give uh, effect to the public acts, records, and proceedings of other states, Uh, the Article 4 privileges and immunities clause, which prohibits discrimination against out-of-state citizens, the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, very similarly phrased, has been interpreted to uh, protect to some degree the right of individuals to travel among the states, and finally the uh, dormant aspects of the Commerce Clause, which limit the ability of states to uh, restrict or uh, discriminate against uh, commerce from outside uh, the state. Uh, there's also some substantive due process in here as well, which is because the right to travel has also been protected as a matter of 14th Amendment substantive due process. And in fact, Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, tries to kind of preempt some of this uh, uh, debate with a sentence that just sort of says that he thinks uh, that the right to travel uh, is of such a source that will restrict states from trying to uh, punish their residents when they try to travel outside the state. Uh, Now, that is probably going to be, uh, at least in the early going, the most significant kind of source of cross-border friction. Uh, Individuals, a uh, pregnant woman who is... uh, 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 gets pregnant in his domiciliary of a state that has uh, stringent abortion restrictions, trying to travel to a jurisdiction that has uh, more uh, lenient abortion laws or no abortion restrictions whatsoever. Uh, it will come to the foremost pointedly if, in fact, a jurisdiction tries to limit that freedom, say, have a statute saying anyone who assists uh, in abortion or anyone who tries to procure an abortion will be subject to criminal penalties uh, or civil penalties. The uh, state of Texas, for example, has uh, enacted a civil penalty enforceable by any person uh, for uh, anyone who assists or, or uh, 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 in trying to procure an abortion. If that's construed to have uh, extraterritorial effect, you could see lawsuits against an abortion clinic in, say, Massachusetts if a Texas yeah. domiciliary tries to take advantage uh, of abortion services there. So there's a lot of questions that are going to need to be worked out uh, by the courts about kind of how this works and what are the limits of a uh, particular state to uh, reach conduct in another state. Now, the Supreme Court has been sort of very lenient on this front to date in terms of uh, constitutional limits on choice of law and conflicts of law, uh, but this might be an occasion for much more kind of stringent uh, restrictions on that kind of uh, extraterritorial authority. Great. So thank you so much. Um, and coming back to stare decisis, um, it's looked at as something that promotes the legitimacy of the court. And overruling Roan Casey is going obviously against stare decisis. And so how do you think this um, affects the legitimacy of the court or how the public, you know, views the court in general? Yeah, so stare decisis is this, is a sort of complicated uh, subject, as yes. um, for anyone who studied constitutional law has kind of kind of learned, because it is it is an important principle for the court, and one they frequently intone and frequently uh, insist upon as an important kind of criterion of the lawfulness of their decision. At the same time, it is a doctrine that no one believes should be absolutely permanently controlling in all circumstances. Every justice uh, is in favor of overruling at least some cases in some circumstances uh, and very supportive of past instances of overruling. Some of the most widely praised decisions in the court's history, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, for example, have involved overruling prior precedent. Uh, So it's kind of hard to 
figure out the impact of a particular uh, decision. Now, this particular uh, instance is not an ordinary overruling. I think the high public salience of Roe, the fact that it's been challenged before, the fact that the Supreme Court has upheld it before on sorry to crisis grounds uh, makes it meaningfully different from a lot of the prior instances that one might point to uh, as examples of uh, overruling. And I think the we're thinking of sort of legitimacy in terms of public perception or kind of sociological uh, legitimacy, uh, I think a lot of that at any given moment in time uh, tends to track how people feel about the underlying merits more than sort of the abstract questions about uh, constitutional theory or legal process. So people who are strongly against uh, abortion are likely to be very happy with this decision. Those who are uh, strongly pro-choice are likely to think this is totally illegitimate and totally uh, uh, contrary to, uh, uh, you know, the proper role of, of, of the court. Um, I think we are interested in interesting times just given the current composition of the court the current kind of alignment of the justices and the fact that for the first time in quite a while the partisan division the the ideological division on the court matches fairly well the partisan division of the appointing presidents all of the uh republican appointees share a broadly similar philosophy that is uh, meaningfully different in important ways from the types of philosophies that unite uh, the Democratic appointees. Uh, now, that has significance for, I think, how the court is going to be perceived. I think uh, if one side is consistently winning, you're going to see uh, the other side very skeptical of the legitimacy of the court uh, for some sustained period of time. Now, of course, it would be the exact same process uh, if the rules were reversed, if this were a cohesive uh, uh majority that shared the ideological leanings of the Democratic appointees, I think you would see similar uh, frustrations and similar levels of disapprovement uh, on the right. So uh, uh, it is, I think it is part of a broader pattern of uh, uh, degradation or erosion of public support and public confidence in institutions more generally. And I would expect we are seeing some of that now with regard to the court. And I think we will, uh, again, Predictions are hard, but my, yeah. I would in no way be surprised if uh, that erosion sort of continues or levels off in some meaningful way, meaningfully lower than it has been uh, in our recent history. So, Professor, and again, we appreciate your time and uh, thank you for joining us. Just our final question, just following up on what you just said. I have another question. Oh, okay. Sorry. Our <laughs> penultimate question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> going off your point there, so, you know, there was, uh, I'm not sure if you follow the, the Onion, but it's a, it's a satire <laughs> website. In the wake of this decision, they, uh, on their website, sort of put all these headlines out there that said, you're nodding, so I assume you saw this. They said Supreme Court decides... I saw saw the uh, the collection. I I saw the front page. Right. It was basically Supreme Court decides six to three and then just a million different things. And so there's this idea out there that the Supreme Supreme Court is just... uh, Right. The Supreme Court is just, you know, irreconcilably uh, polarized and you're just going to have this dominant conservative wing this the sixth that's always going to beat three mm-hmm. and uh you know, people talking about packing the court and all of these things mm-hmm. to the extent you're able to sort of d- d- discuss and, and have some insight on this does the court in your opinion you know in and of itself have uh an awareness of some of this do, do you think that this and obviously dobbs is a case that is 
uh, far more polarizing than maybe sort of the more of the mundane issues that the Supreme Court also decides that we don't really spend much time talking about within the court is there a recognition for uh, you know where the institution is headed and, and, and public perception of it and is the court in its own awareness of itself able to um, find some balance here at a time where it feels like there is not very much of it so I think there is a cognizance on the course and I think this is a very clearly sort of something that we can discern very clearly uh, reflected in Chief Justice Roberts's uh, opinion and preferred disposition of this case. I think he was, he shares some of the uh, concerns. I would, and this is somewhat speculative, but, uh, you know, I think think it's a fair reading of the opinion and the surrounding circumstances. Uh, It seems that he is uh, concerned about going too far too fast and wanting to uh, ensure that there, both as a as a as a practical matter, there's not too much disruption attended by uh, the court's rulings, uh, but also concerns about uh, the broader perceptions of the court and its uh, overall institutional legitimacy. Um, now there is, you know, there is a countervailing trend, uh, obviously, which is kind of why uh, no other justice uh, joined his opinion. And it's always this tension. It's a tension played up by stare decisis. You know, if you think the law is wrong in some important way, uh, do you stand by that simply because the decision has been rendered in a particular way in the past, uh, or do you try to correct it? And if you try to correct it, do you try to do so as quickly as possible, uh, particularly if you know that the composition of the court might change and the cohesive majority you now have might be a, a time-limited phenomenon, uh, or do you take a more cautious approach uh, to try to preserve some of the institutional capital that might be uh, attendant there, too? And it is a question the court is now kind of navigating and sort of trying to uh, balance. And I think the uh, discussions of court packing, I don't think, will abate uh, anytime soon, whether there's policy movement on that front or not, uh, at least until the court... Uh, sort of takes his foot off the throttle a little bit and um, uh, uh, either proceeds in a more gradualist fashion or decides to take some more uh, lower profile cases uh, for the bulk of its uh, uh, docket. Awesome. Uh, well, first I wanted to plug your Twitter talking about internet satire. It's really great. I recommend to everyone. Um, so Professor Williams' Twitter is internet satire. Of so course. I he's he's okay. got a great Twitter feed. <laughs> Yeah, so thank you very much. I, I, I share all my substantive thoughts uh, for other venues because yeah. Twitter, Twitter is not for substance. No. no. <laughs> all right. And my last question is um, actually today, um, we're recording this July 8th. That's, that's the day. Um, so the White House just announced that Biden is going to issue an executive order surrounding Dobbs case and the fundamental right to abortion. Wanted to know how this could affect things. Um, I don't think the order is actually out right now. I think they, the White House just announced they were going uh, he was going to give one. Uh, well, they, oh, uh Thank you. This is breaking news to me. Yeah, so no, I, I was breaking right news before, on Just Law now. Right no, before no, no, no. I said, "Oh my this gosh, is, we have we're, to we're ask him about here. this." This is great. Yes. Uh, sorry. So I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I haven't had a chance. No, to, that's uh, fine. I just. Just how would an an executive so, uh, order? And I think there are things the federal government uh, can do. A, yeah. a major issue is going to be the treatment of medication abortion. Yes. Uh, which is increasingly uh, prominent in a way that it was not at the time Roe was handed down, uh, because that is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration at the federal level. 
there are going to be questions about federal preemption if a state tries to uh, block or penalize the use of that medication. There might be questions about whether that is consistent with uh, uh, federal law. There might be uh, questions about uh, access to abortion for federal employees and different policies. There are, th- there are things the federal government can do, certainly, to influence this decision. And the ultimate question, and one that is going to be out there as well as part of our politics, is are we going to have national regulation uh, of abortion of some kind? Uh, just because it is not uh, a, a, in the majority of the Supreme Court's view, a constitutional right does not mean that it might not be something that uh, Congress, pursuant to its commerce power or some other enumerated power, might uh, try to or choose to regulate. And if that step is taken, either could go either way as well, either a uh, recodification of Roe of some kind or a abortion ban, as some have proposed at the national level, or abortion restrictions at the national level. Uh, if either of those measures is taken at some point in the future, there will be uh, some questions about the scope of Congress's authority as well. Very good. Uh, okay. Professor, I was speaking with uh, Professor Ryan Williams about the Dobbs uh, opinion from the Supreme Court and the issue of abortion, all the important constitutional discussions that that flow from there. So again, I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Samantha Bear, and we're lucky enough to be joined by Professor Williams at BC Law here on the Just Law Podcast. And until next time, uh, that'll do it. Thank you for watching, and uh, we'll catch you again soon.